In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Andy Simon is our guest today on Money Tales. Andy is a culture change expert and an explorer at heart. She's someone who is interested in the stories we tell ourselves and each other. She advocates for smashing those myths that hold us back. In this episode, Annie brings her expertise and tools to money conversations, helping us understand what we can do to create new money stories for ourselves. Let me give you a little introduction to Andy. She's an international leader in the growing field of corporate anthropology. Andy is also an author. Her first book is titled On the Brink, A Fresh Lens to Take Your Heights to New Business. Her latest book, Under the Fast Company imprint, titled Rethink, shows how women today are challenging the expected norms of business. Additionally, Andy's a fellow podcaster. Her podcast, also titled On the Brink, is ranked among the top 20 for futurists and is in the top 5% of global podcasts. Hey, this is Sandy. Andy shared many rich insights. Here are three Money Tales conversation topics she brings to life. First, the power of modeling. Andy shares that she learned a lot at the knee of her grandmother, who successfully ran the family business and first taught Andy about money. Second, negotiating. At a time when there were a few female executive role models, Andy approached her male colleagues with curiosity to help her understand how they navigated the murky waters of money and promotions. Third, retraining the brain. Our minds are visual. We can create new habits by creating new visions and stories that go along with them. Because if you can't visualize where you're going, the mind won't let you get there. Andy also provides a 30-day exercise that will help you retrain your brain and rethink money habits you may want to shift. Another thing Andy mentions in this discussion is how she and her husband are in an enviable position to make generous gifts to their family and community. After the interview, Cammie and I explore this further and discuss how we at Asperient take clients through a process that gives them context and clarity around their giving strategies. Now, onto our conversation with Andy Simon. Sandy, hey there. I was talking to a friend of mine last night that I wanted to tell you about this conversation. She's someone that is well-regarded in the industry, knows our space. She's also a coach and a mentor and a friend. She was talking to me about money tales and she said, you guys need to do a TED talk. What do you think? I love that idea. I want to keep doing whatever we can to help people have productive money conversations. And if getting on a TED stage or TEDx stage is the way to do it, I am all game, Cammy. I am too. It makes me nervous, but it gets me excited as well. I'm also very excited to introduce today's guest, Andy Simon, we have here today on Money Tales. Welcome. Thank you. 
we would like to start off by sharing just a summary of your journey and a couple pivotal moments that got you here today. I'm Andy Simon. I'm a corporate anthropologist. I've specialized for the last 40 years in helping organizations change. Now, before I went into my own business, I was a corporate executive for about 14 years in financial services and about seven years in healthcare. All of them were going through major changes in their business environments, deregulation, managed care, it didn't matter what. But I learned real fast that most people hate change. Sometimes they hate me for changing them. You learn a lot about how the brain survived by being rigid and in control. And change creates a lot of cortisol and a lot of stuff that people find is really painful, literally. Before that, I was an anthropologist. I took an academic journey and I got my doctorate studying immigrants and return migration. I actually took my daughters when they were four and five to Greece. We spent several months studying Greek women, and they told me some real good secrets. Their secret is how they control their son after they get married. They don't give the daughter-in-law the full recipe for their favorite meals. I went, ah, how interesting, power in the recipe. But I am a corporate anthropologist, and I have spent the academic side and the applied side, and now the business side, helping people do something that's difficult. Nobody really goes to school to learn how to change. And I used to say, if you want to change, have a crisis or create one. I never expected a pandemic, and I certainly wouldn't want another one. But I also preach today, don't waste the crisis. It's a time for a really good rethinking about what matters. My daughter gave me a quote many years ago. It went like this, in the course of a lifetime, what really matters? It makes you reflect heavily on whether it's money or other things where are your priorities and how do you spend your days? Every day is a gift, as we've learned. The whole you only live once, that pandemic is emphasized, but that's the truth. And you need to be very careful that you're living it the way you want to. So that's been my journey. Andy, we're so excited to have you, a change expert and someone who really knows how the mind works on Money Tales, because as you know from your own life, money requires a lot of thinking, a lot of attention. And certainly when we want to change money behaviors or our money attitudes, a lot of change. There's a lot we can learn from you. To get the conversation going some more, it would be great to hear about some of your early experiences with money. We know from reading your most recent book, Rethink, that you started out in life within a family business and with a matriarch, your grandmother, running that business. And we'd love for you to share a little bit more about that and how that helped form some of your own ideas about money as a young person. Well, I always like to reflect on the past as we look for the future. It's always an interesting balancing act. I almost wrote this book, What I Learned at My Grandmother's Knee, because I remember as a young little girl standing there watching her count the money. That was a big part of her day at the end of a day. This was a family firm, and it was another retail business in Manhattan. It was quite a large square block. I didn't know at the time I was being primed to take over the business someday. And part of my education was standing at her knee. Sometimes it was down in the basement putting shirts on hangers with Leo or watching what was going on on the floor or taking care of a customer. But I remember the impact it had on me seeing the whole thing. I don't think a child can really understand a business without seeing it because we understand things based on our eyes and our heart. And it was an interesting and challenging business. I remember going into the market as a young kid with my mother and my grandmother to go buying. And I remember saying to her, Grandma, how do you know what to buy? And she said to me, well, Andrea, one third will sell full price and one third will sell on sale and one third will get stolen and walk out the door. And I used to say, a lot of science in this, isn't there? It was an art of being a good merchant. 
those are the kernels of the things at the dinner table. At a family firm dinner table, was the conversation was all about the day's business. What did they buy in the market? What are they selling? What's selling? What's not selling? The staffing. I learned a whole lot about conversational intelligence because I didn't have to do much but sit there and absorb what was going on. The only problem with all of this was two parts. The giving part, my parents were very generous, and my mother in particular was a giver. Adam Grant has a great book on givers and takers. So I wasn't indulged, but I was encouraged to be my own person. She was very firm about, don't listen to what other people are telling you, make up your own mind. I wasn't quite sure then what my own mind thought, but I knew I couldn't tell her someone else suggested it. It was great empowerment. And I remember as a kid taking my allowance and hopping on my bike and driving over to Lord & Taylor's and buying what I needed. I had great freedom. It raised me well. I never thought back on needing more rules or roles to play. But I also knew that when I went off to college, theoretically, I was going to learn to be the legacy heir to this business until I discovered anthropology. I also discovered my husband, but I came back, (laughs) went to Columbia to take all my anthropology. The business was down the street from Columbia University. And I remember saying to my grandmother, I'm not going to do this, grandma. I'm going to be an anthropologist. And I can see her eyes roll. And how did it feel for you to tell her that? Were you scared? No, I didn't have any feelings about her feelings. I knew what my feelings were. I was too young, even then, to be sensitive to how this would impact her. I was really excited. I had discovered my calling. And a little bit about my husband in here. I met my husband when I was 19. We know each other a long time. On the beach on Scroon Lake, we still remember the conversation. What are you going to be when you grow up? And I said to him, well, I'm either going to be an attorney or an anthropologist. And he said, oh, be an anthropologist and I'll be here for you. And I went, good, because that's what I really want to be. And that's how it all came together. What did your husband mean by that? I'll be here. Oh, I have no idea. And he doesn't either. (laughs) All I know is that he was going to be my teammate. And he really has been. In some ways, he encouraged me. I went over to Greece to do my research. I took my daughters when they were four and five to Greece to do research. He never said anything except, how can I help you? But I remember vividly us reading my dissertation, which was really not very well written, and him saying to me, you're not going to be all but degree, ABD. You are going to finish this, dude. And I'm sitting there, my eyes are closing, and he and I are finishing this dissertation. We got it done. But we've been a team for a long time. The irony is that we were both very successful professionals, traveled a great deal until the pandemic. And I don't think we've ever spent this much time together in the same house doing the same things He's a serial entrepreneur and sold his business in 2017 and joined mine. The two of us, we have a good time. We laugh a lot. Uh, That's a trick. Why anthropology versus this business, your grandmother's work? Why were you drawn to anthropology versus running something so (laughs) business-like? Yeah, so powerful. Like A lot of things were going on at the same time. I can't tell you exactly why, but I know we make decisions with our heart. And there was something that I heard in that Anthro 101 course. Vividly remember the gentleman saying to us, Anthro 101, data do not exist. Out of context, they have no meaning. We're meaning makers. We tell stories. We live our stories. I went, boy, I don't know what an anthropologist does, but I want to do that. It's really a calling. So when people say, well, how'd you get into business? I said, I was always an anthropologist. I just saw business through the lens of a researcher, and I was EVP of a bank. Nobody really knew what I was doing, but we were changing it. And I understood how hard it was for people to change. So I developed all my toolkits to do it, but I never looked back. I'm never sorry I didn't go into retail. I love it. You're the ultimate storyteller then. 
as a young person following your passion, what really interests you, was money part of your calculus in deciding what to do when you were choosing between anthropology and law? And that was why I was wondering about your husband, that he would be with you. I wasn't sure if that meant that there was some sort of financial implication in there. Tell us about the money aspects. To your point, I do think there was financial awareness on his part that if I became an academic, I wouldn't be making a lot of money. But we were not money motivated in that sense. Having said that, he's been extremely successful in business, and I haven't been no slouch either. And we learned not far into it how to leverage money. What did money mean as you went from one job position to another? And when I left academics and went into Citibank, they doubled my salary, gave me four weeks vacation. I was never looking backwards. I said, you have any idea what an academic actually does and how much work there is? I have lucked out. Let's keep going. But I do think you begin to realize what the meaning of that money is, how it's tied into what you're doing. At the end of the day, I remained who I was, but I was doing things that did earn me a great deal more money. And I don't care whether it's an EVP of a bank or a VP in healthcare, your compensation was a reflection symbolically of who you were and how good you were. In those days, I must tell you, I was often the only woman. And you realize that the equity in pay wasn't there. Someone asked me the other day, how do I negotiate? I said, hard, because it's very hard to feel your worth the same as someone else who's doing a similar job or the person before you who did the job and ask for the same salary. And it became a skill set that I had to cultivate to do it gently and not sound as if I was braggadocious to get the job, but also get it at a salary that was equitable, if not equal. And so money became symbolic of our value. And it wasn't just to earn it. It was who I was and how it anointed you with the right meaning. If data out of context has no meaning, this was the context of the dollar. And it had a lot of meaning for all kinds of interesting, important social reasons. And I learned how to negotiate impactfully and effectively to make a lot of money because I thought it was important to be recognized for what I was doing. Leading the way for so many women at the time, if you go a little deeper and share some of the techniques and how you learned, because you didn't have role models. Many women today are still struggling with those same challenges. There are more role models today in terms of female role models. Tell us more. What can we learn from your experiences and the techniques you were using? Let's talk about them in different ways. On the one hand, there weren't many women. There was one woman who would give me quietly advice. We went to a board meeting at the bank. I was there and there were 49 men, a nun and me. Sounds like a joke. Uh huh. I put that in my book and the proofreader, she pulled it out of the book. She said, that's a joke. I said, no, it's real. It wasn't exactly a comfortable place. You learned a lot. I did have men who mentored me. In the chapters in my book in Rethink, many of the women said to me, there were no women to mentor us. So the men who saw value in what we were doing and skills and opportunities became our mentors. Maria Gallo speaks often about all the men along the way who kept promoting her up, introducing her to places. Evelyn Medvin said the same thing. I need to talk about the men who were my sponsors because only 16% of the geoscientists are women. And I never had anybody who could mentor or support me. Having said that, if you listened carefully to the guys, they taught you something that I'm not sure the woman would have told me or taught me because they taught me how to think about it as a guy did. He couldn't flip over and say, as a woman, you should. What he would flip and say to me, well, this is how we would do it. And I said, well, that should be how I should do it, right? 
you can begin to not become masculinized, but at least understand the nuances of how the guys navigated the murky waters of money and promotion, jobs, position, without worrying about parody or anything else that we do today. And they just knew how to play ball. And that was a game that they had learned. And I was quite open to learn from them how to do that. You had to be very intentional about asking the right questions from the right guys who were willing to talk to you. Somebody said to me once, how'd you get those guys to mentor you? I said, well, they didn't know what they were mentoring. And it wasn't like I went in and said, would you be my mentor? I just went in and said, can we talk a little bit? And I was picked their brains. The anointment as a mentor gave them responsibility and accountability. I didn't want that. That was awkward. I just wanted a buddy who would talk to me. And they did. How have you brought this forward? You've got two daughters. Money is symbolic of value. How have you brought that into their worlds as you were raising them? I'm going to tell you about my two daughters. One reflects my husband and the other me in their money management. Rachel, who reflects my husband, is a conserver of dollars. She also is a money manager in the home in many ways. She's a school teacher. Her husband has a wonderful business as a contractor. There's always the wisdom that comes from knowing the limits and managing it carefully. And my husband is that way. I think if he could, he'd still have our first two nickels. Then he married me. And I grew up in a home where spending money wasn't casual, but it wasn't quite as conservative either. My daughter, Alex, probably cringe if I said this, she's very successful. But I remember when she overcharged herself on her credit card and we said, sure, we'll help out, but we're not going to do that again, are we? And she's a good money manager now, but learned a little bit along the way, bouncing a little bit. And she's a chief revenue officer of a company in the fashion industry. They've taken different paths. My husband and I both believe that what we have is more important to share than it is to just simply have. He was very fortunate and he grew a successful business and sold it for a nice return. And I've been very successful. Many people are worried about running out of money in their older years. We're not worried about that, but we are worried about having a way to share our success and joy with the rest of our family so they don't have to wait for us to die to enjoy it. I haven't quite figured out that mindset. I'd much rather say, how can we help? Let's have some fun. I love that. And I love that you and your husband were having open money conversations throughout your marriage, which is fantastic, especially as each of you are seemingly aware of your different attitudes about money. And it sounds like you're having those same relationships and conversations with your daughters as well, so that everybody is on the same page. I want to congratulate you for having an awareness of what your goals are from this point forward, having fun and using your money to promote all of that within your family. How are money conversations happening in the greater Simon household? Because we know that you and your husband are grandparents. What are you guys doing to match this goal that you have for your resources with the members of the family? Those are powerful questions because the joy we get with sharing means what is it our grandkids are doing where we can lend a hand? It's not replacing, it's not making them feel indulged, but it is giving them a hand. So both my granddaughters ride horses and we fox hunted for 25 years and owned horses and ponies and all kinds of stuff. And so we give a hand there. And my grandson plays multiple sports. He just turned 16. So we lent a hand in his car. He's all over the place, but he's good values and he heads off to go hunting with his dad. My daughters are raising good kids and their husbands are good and they laugh a lot. People say to me, how did you stay married all these years? 
you've got to keep into perspective what matters. And my husband and I always celebrate every month that we make money, whether we need it or not. I prefer to make money than spend more than we're earning. And I love having clients who pay well, but I also don't take too many so that I have a little time off for good behavior. Time has become more valuable, or at least as valuable as everything else. The only thing we do have is time. If nothing else, the pandemic has taught us, uh, don't waste a day. You talked about the brain being rigid. When we're trying to stretch ourselves, learn new tricks, and I think about with money, we come with these behaviors that we were taught as a young person, and maybe we want to move past them. When you got this rigid brain, any tips? How do we change those grooves, make them less rigid so we can move into a new path? There's some wonderful cognitive science and psychology and all kinds of stuff. And I love Martin Seligman's stuff on homo perspectives. But what we've learned is that around the age of 20, 25, your mind has developed a story. It's a pretty interesting movie set going on up there. So as you talked about learning life at my grandmother's knee, I'm telling you the story as I remember it. But what it does is it gives you the illusion of reality. And it's illusion. There's no reality. There's only the illusions that each of us carry. Now, once you have that, your mind sees exactly what it thinks you wanted to see. And it doesn't see any of the stuff that doesn't fit that story. What's ever up there, however you've learned the habits and we're habit-driven, the habits take over and you don't have to work very hard. Your mind doesn't want to think very hard. It just goes through the habits. Interesting when my husband and I have something to do around the money stuff, we each approach it from our old stories. And then you need a little conversation to come back to have our story. Because at the end of the day, there's nothing right or wrong with either story. It's how you are and how you live. It's a great line. The only truth is there's no truth. And sometimes you begin to see it. To your point, though, Kemi, how do you change? There's a lot of great research showing how we can begin to change the story in our mind. When we begin, you've got to visualize a different kind of story. The mind is plastic. It's much more comfortable rejecting and hijacking the new because it's dangerous. You know, the amygdala likes to hijack it. It's a familiar that I want. Don't give me all this stuff because you can't trust it. If you're in a business and I want you to now have collaborative meetings instead of working in your silo, and I want you to share ideas instead of keeping them isolated, people look at you and say, what? How do you do that? How do you actually share an idea? There's no skill set there. So we're going to change our attitudes toward money. We have to begin to imagine what that will be like. So if I say that I'm much more open to spending things and my husband is more resistant to spending them, I need a new story in my mind that puts a slap on it every time I go to Amazon to buy a pair of boots. And he says, what's coming from Amazon? I said, well, I need a pair of boots. He said, you need another pair of boots? I mean, you could hear the conversation almost anticipating it. And I, as I was there on Amazon saying, should I or shouldn't I? I can almost predict his reaction as he gets that little UPS thing saying, you're going to have a delivery tomorrow. But here's the challenge. You can change. You're attached to your shiny object. The mind works this way. And it doesn't want to move over here until it sees what this is. So we talk a lot about how to get over here and how to begin to then move over so the shiny object is more balanced or different. I'm not going to say to people, if you are a hoarder and you keep every dollar you make, you now want to be flamboyant with it. You can. But part of it is keeping people from falling off the cliff because they won't even know how far off they are before they're down. And you don't want to jump out of the airplane without a parachute. But the question is, how can you encourage more trust that a little bit more 
generosity or a little bit more, don't buy those boots, would be actually very helpful. You don't want to go overcharge your credit card before you don't have any more money on it. And you really don't want to have a lot of debt. One thing we don't have is any debt. I'm not a debt person, but it's an interesting question. Doable, but you have to work at it. The plasticity is there. As you begin to think about a new story, you'll find new habits created. I'll do a pitch for my 30-day challenge. I haven't thought of it as a 30-day challenge to deal with money differently, but it's an eight-step process. You have a morning inspiration, and there are some things you're going to do every day, three things perhaps, that are going to help you change. And then at the end of the day, you're going to put up your wall of wins of what you've actually done. You're going to watch a coach's corner where you get some advice on how to do it. And then you're going to watch maybe a TED talk that gives you a longer story about it. And then you're going to write your gratitude. Then you're going to celebrate each other's wins. And I'm going to talk, we're working on one now, and we have another one that starts on Monday. Talk to the folks about where does money fit in here? Because it's a good question. I'd love to pick their brains and come back and send you a note and say, this is some interesting observations on their part. They're just trying to work on self-care and they're all stressed out and they're very powerful people, but they're all trying to figure out how a little self-care can help their day be better. To your point, the habits take about 30 days to change. I think that this is a great opportunity to try and figure out how do I change my attitude toward money and how I use it and feel good at the end of the day. Great exercise. It makes me think of the work that we do with clients. One of the very first things we do when we sit down with new clients is ask them to share with us their vision for the future. What you've just provided us, Andy, is with more nuance and how to go deeper. And especially if there are things that someone wants to change. So thank you. Your point about you asked what they visualize for themselves, that's an extraordinarily wonderful way to open the mind. Because if I can't visualize where I'm going, the mind won't let you get there. And it isn't the past. We talked today about the past. Equally important is where do I see us going and how do we get there? And that's how we live every day based on our visualization of tomorrow. And it's not just a vision, it's a whole story. I want to get back to your book, Rethink, because you have some wonderful stories in there about 11 different women, including yourself, who have smashed myths about women in business. I like the way that you talked about smashing myths. First of all, it's very active. And myths are these stories that we carry maybe within ourselves, but really largely in the society that we live in. And some of these stories you present in the book just aren't true and they need to be rewired. I would love to hear about how you came up with this concept, focusing on smashing myths and also your thoughts on how to create new myths beyond our individual lives, but really at the societal level. Sandy, is a marvelous way of capturing the essence of the book, but also setting the question. So thank you. That's really cool. Everything has an origin myth. I'll give you the story of the story. My husband and I had a program at Washington University for three years called the Simon Initiative for Entrepreneurship. He's a serial entrepreneur, and I've been an entrepreneur, and I work with entrepreneurs. We wanted to particularly help women entrepreneurs. And what we heard from them was that they were looking for role models. They wanted women like Maxine Clark, who founded Build-A-Bear. They didn't want to be Sheryl Sandberg. They had ideas. They want to know how to create big ones and great companies over it. My publisher said, well, when's your next book? I said, I have this idea. I think that I'm going to go interview women and create a book of role models for other women. Marianne Edelman, who founded the Children's Defense Fund, said, if you can't see it, you can't be it. That really captured the essence of what we were thinking about. 
I did about 50, 60 interviews and I was reading them to my husband and he says to me, these women are all smashing the myths of women in business. And I went, holy shit, that's a much better book. And so I paused and I went back and I said to my publisher, I'm going to change this bit. I said, this is about smashing the myths of women in business. And my editor said, you want to call it Rethink? And I said, oh, I like that too. So there was my new book. Then I had to go back and rewrite it. But it was easy to set their stories in the context of we don't do that. No, it's not done. Women can't. My whole purpose was to show, of course you can. And here's one woman who did it, but how many more can do it? Listen to the stories and then what's yours? The end was all about, so what's your story and how can we help you rethink it? Any input on the societal influence? Any thoughts on pushing this forward? Let's talk about why humans need myths. I said their brains need a story and that story isn't real. It's a story. It's an illusion. What happens in society is that we share it with others who, like us, have common values and beliefs and ways of doing things. It becomes our culture. And then we defend each other from the outsiders, that tribalism, with mythology. And it becomes our truths. The problem for our society is that we're really small islands in a larger entity, and each of them creates its own mythology, gives them legitimacy and values, a sense of purpose. We are small. People said, well, why are you studying business? You study small societies. I said, no, every business is a small society. Once you realize that, there are only so many people that you interact with. We want others who are like you. Birds of a feather flock together. And we go where others are, and we begin to believe what they say is the truth. So when Stephanie Breloff was told by her family, women fail as entrepreneurs, she said, no, we don't. And she succeeded. And Andy Kramer was told by a family friend, don't be a lady lawyer. Lady lawyers don't ever succeed. They don't have kids. You will have to be awful. And every one of the folks that I was talking to, which is why it was so fascinating, said, of course they can. They weren't profit motives. They weren't position motives. They were purposeful. They had something more in their dreams than simply achieving a high level in a corporate environment. They wanted to do something that mattered. They had a calling. Now, the mythology in our society is changing slowly. And that's because what we know to be true, we hold on to for a long time. And it's our shiny object. And we can keep saying that women aren't good attorneys. There are 400,000 women attorneys. Only 27% of the partners in law firms are women. More than half the doctors are women. But you take a look at a hospital. Well, a few I know where women are in senior positions, but the guys are very happy there. I had one friend who has a staffing firm. He said all the recruiters are women and all the guys manage the offices. There's lots that we need to do to begin to create equality, equity, parity, position, and understand that women bring fresh perspectives into the business world. We're doing it in some places more than others. The questions you're asking are big questions. How are we changing society so men and women can have equal opportunities, equal pay? I heard not long ago the president of presidential insurance say that every person in her organization made the pay for the job, whether they were guys or gals, black or white, and it wasn't their particular identity that influenced their pay. It was we pay for the job. How hard is that? Shouldn't women and men be making the same thing if they're doing the same job? My takeaway from this conversation is that we need to continue sharing stories with each other, including money stories, so that we can all learn from each other's experiences and really change these myths and have power over them and make sure that everyone is on equal footing and that we're supporting each other. 
And I want to mention about Rethink, Janine Furpo, who is a past Many Tales guest, is also featured in that book. For our listeners, if you're looking for something new to read, you don't want to miss this one. Be sure to pick up a copy of Rethink. Well, thank you so much. As you were talking, I was saying to myself, equal parity is about money, but it's also about respect and it's about appreciation and it's about understanding. What's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? The question for us is where do we make contributions? Why do we make contributions? How do we make them of value? Some of our nonprofit work turned into very good experiences. Others did not. And I think we're very intentional about who we give funds to and how and what it is we're expecting from it. I saw that Melinda Gates is changing where she's giving money and how she's giving it. I think she's a beautiful illustration of how her values are now impacting her contributions. I think that's about where our conversations are as well. Who and how shall we share our blessings and what's the right timing and for what purpose? Do we want to control what we give? Do we want to influence it or do we want to be just simply generous about it? I think that's where we're at. Andy, Simon, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing so much of yourself. I'm empowered to rethink the power of stories that you've brought to life and how to change that rigid brain. I'm inspired. Thank you so much for joining us on Money Tales. Thank you for having me. Sandy, what a great conversation with Andy Simon. She and her husband are focused on generosity and giving money away. As a wealth manager, how do we help clients who are in a similar situation? We approach it in a three-step process. First is the visioning process. This is some of what we talked about with Andy. You've got to know what your vision is. What are your goals? How do you want the people and the organizations that you're giving gifts to to feel and think about the gifts? need a really clear, solid vision. For some of our clients, giving is just part of their annual lifestyle expense. For other clients, it tends to be lumpier. They're making large gifts in a lump sum or over a series of a few years. So they really come in all different shapes and sizes. There's no one vision that fits all. It's critical for us to understand what matters most to our clients so we really understand that vision. We spend a lot of time on that. After we go through the vision exercise, we do long-term modeling. We want to make sure that the vision that the clients have is affordable. And we want to understand how we can design the implementation of the vision, which is the third step, coming up with a strategy design. How can we put that design together in a way that achieves the client's visions and is optimal to different financial considerations, whether they be gift tax rules that we've talked about in prior Money Tales episodes or charitable gift deduction rules that we've also talked about. So it's really those three things, vision, modeling, strategy design. When you're doing the visioning and the financial modeling, do you find that often clients are liberated through this process to actually take action before they ever thought they could? In some cases, yes. Having those two components in place can provide a lot of clarity. And I find that it creates a nice decision-making environment for clients because they have, again, that clear vision They understand what it takes. They know that it's affordable. If it's not affordable, we go back to the drawing board, rework the plan and figure out how it could be possible. If it turns out that it is affordable and there's even more resources, well, we get to go back to the drawing board again and talk about whether the clients want to increase their generosity or do something different with that excess. It does create a really nice decision-making environment that leads to confidence. I should mention in that third stage, the strategy design phase. 
a really important aspect of that is having money conversations. If you're going to make gifts to family members, to friends, to organizations, it's really helpful to communicate your why behind the gifts. If you have any expectations related to the gifts, or if you don't, communicating that is really important because it allows the recipient to really treasure the gift. And have clarity if you have expectations or not. Both are really important so someone doesn't fill in the blank and assume their expectations or some sort of strings attached. It reminds me of the conversation we had with Jen Risher when she talked about how she and her husband would make gifts to her brother on an annual basis. The money conversation around those gifts had stopped and she wasn't sure that her brother was really paying attention to the gifts. So she stopped giving them and that caused some friction that they then ultimately talked about. That's a money tales example of how having money conversations up front and expressing all of these ideas can, again, make the gift more impactful. Can you think of a time when you've received a gift where there was a lot of meaning attached to it that was conveyed to you upon receiving it? I can think of a time when I received a financial gift that had been communicated over time what the expectations were in a really positive way that it is for education, that it is not to be consumed willy-nilly. It really did help. There was no negative feelings for having strings attached. There was a purpose for it. It wasn't my money in the beginning. That clarity and that communication made it feel like an extra special gift. That's a great example. That's why having these money conversations is so important. And I am delighted that Andy Simon joined us for this episode and shared so much with us. She really gave us and our listeners a lot to think about. I'm going to do the 30-day exercise. How about you, Sandy? I will do that with you. Excellent. Yeah. I hope our listeners will do it as well. Listeners, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's feedback, results from your 30-day exercise, or if you have any recommended guests we should consider on Money Tales and Invite. Please email us at podcasts at Asperient.com. Join us next time on Money Tales. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.